This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the short code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler in the studio today and live streaming on our Facebook group, the Short Code Student Lounge. Rising M2, Rick Gardner is here. Hello, fellow microchip reptilians. And Aline Sanduk, an MD-PhD student, has graced us with her presence. Yep, they let me out of the lab just for this. Oh, mm. that's nice. AJ Chowdhury is joining us from the internet. Hello, AJ. Hello. And as is our special guest, uh, New York Times bestselling author, Johns Hopkins surgeon. His book, The Price We Pay is out June 8th on paperback. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Marty McCary. Great to be with you guys. Yay. Hey, bef <laughs> before we start, we need to hear from our listeners. Comments, topic suggestions, rants, raves, most important, your questions. Uh, so send all those things to the shortcoats at gmail.com and we'll talk about them on the show now that that's dispensed with. Uh, Marty, we had you on the show almost 100 episodes ago when your book came out in hardcover. How's it, first of all, how's it been going? Great. It's going great. First of all, great to see you guys and really excited to be back. You've been productive since the last time we've chatted two years ago. Well, I, I try. I don't, I never, <laughs> I never really guarantee that, but. True. It just happens. He's just magical like that. Yeah. But yeah, the book doing well, I take it. Yeah, the book did great. And so what we did is did a second edition, which is also in paperback. It just came out and I'm really excited about it. It's got a section looking back on COVID and how our health healthcare system needs to be designed differently. Mm. And also just a lot of great success stories. I kind of consider the book to be the business of medicine 101, all the basics. And it gets, allows anybody to start having serious conversations using the same lexicon and understanding the system. Uh, that's why I wrote it. I felt like there was no one book that summarized the healthcare system and framed it in the in the right way. Yeah, well, as you uh, have said already, one or two things have happened in the world of medicine since you published the book. That's yeah, it. I mean, you know. Three, if it was an eventful year. Like, I don't know, we all became amateur epidemiologists. There was a sudden increase in the awareness of the uh, social determinants of health, like institutional racism in healthcare, an incredibly successful vaccine that took only a few short months from the point of view of most people to to develop and test coupled with a nation in which vaccine hesitancy went from something of a fringe problem to the mainstream rock star doctors medical politics i mean i could go on and on and we probably will during the show today what what is this time what what have you learned in this time since covid well i would say the number one thing that we have not been talking about that we've needed to talk about is that we've got to redesign healthcare. And I'm not talking about policies and Obamacare and whether or not we move to a different system. No, I'm talking about on the ground. The system of people coming in, navigating a big parking garage, checking in through security, sitting in a waiting room, then we see them for 10 minutes, throw meds at them, never get at the underlying issues that they need help with. 
omit these giant areas of medicine that we should be talking about, like food as medicine, and the importance of good healthy lifestyles like sleep as it relates to high blood pressure, mm -hmm. um, talking about the, the real issues in healthcare, and instead just throwing meds at problems. And then we tell people, eat better and exercise more and come back in a year. And they come back and we say, you bad, bad, non-compliant patient. That system is broken. Patients hate it. We hate it, right? We hate it as doctors and students. Why are we doing it? So there's new exciting stuff happening where we're redesigning care. And COVID kind of accelerated some of that stuff. I also think COVID exposed giant problems in our healthcare system like a total inability to pivot for a health emergency. And we're gonna have more emergencies, by the way. It's not just viral pandemics. It's hurricanes, earthquakes, mass shootings. We've gotta be able to pivot quickly, answer the key questions that people have fast, not you know, sending an application in for a grant and finding out six months later and sending in a proposal to the IRB to review it and then sending it to a journal and maybe a year and a half, they'll put it in print in something that nobody reads. That system is broken, okay? Mm. We're now using MedPage today and social media and podcasts and what you guys are doing and what my buddy Z-Dog is doing and Peter Atia, And we're trying to get stuff out and pivot quickly. We've gotta be able to do that. Right now our system is broken and it's mostly broken because we've got an old guard legacy medical establishment that likes to do certain things certain ways and, and I think we not only need age and race diversity, but we need eight, not just race and ethnic, ethnic and gender diversity, we need age diversity. Mm. Because I think people, young people think differently in, in a healthy way. So you, you've dropped a lot on us there. I was gonna say, I was like, you should have stopped about a minute through to just let us react. <laughs> and okay. then kept going. But you, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, like, I, like we said, true. a lot has, has happened. And one of the things that I, sort of, I don't know, focused on when you were talking about that is this idea that medicine isn't able to pivot fast enough. And I kind of thought, you know, from my perspective, I kind of thought that that we pivoted pretty well in in coronavirus land and getting to a vaccine and and, and the study of that. Do you have a, is, is, is that different for you? Yeah, so we've had these debates, right? So we've moved about 10 times faster than we've moved for anything else, like a new cancer drug. I mean, it showed that we could do it if, mm -hmm. right? That was pretty impressive, yeah. but we still could have moved a lot faster. For example, we should have combined the phase one and phase two trials. Mm. Okay, we've, we never have done that before. We should have done it here. I guarantee you there would have been thousands of people willing to volunteer back in the epidemic in New York when our hospitals almost got overrun to do a combined phase one, phase two trial. That is, they would have gone into a, they would have done an accelerated phase one instead of the standard way of doing it, you know, give the drug instead of to just one person, wait two weeks, give it to three people, wait two weeks, increase the dose, wait two weeks. I bet you would have found 10 volunteers ready to take that. And then look, when the FDA got the application, they waited three weeks to schedule a meeting of their experts it's, a, it's one application, okay? This is not the college admissions office. They should have turned that thing around in 48 hours without cutting any corners on safety. It's also, so I was obviously it's also like the most, the application that we needed to have in. Uh, it's like, right. what else were you doing? <laughs> we were all on lockdown. Yeah. I see. yeah. And people, thousands of people were dying a day. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings up a question for me. 
How much of that process do you think was impacted by the current administration at the time? Well, I think they really wanted to exert their independence and say, look, we're not going to move faster as there was some pressure on them to do that. We're going to do it on our own uh, watch. And I think, yeah, there's a value to scientific independence. But at the same time, have a sense of urgency for the love of humanity. I mean, I wrote a couple pieces on the FDA and the people who defend the FDA and said, oh, they had to take their time. First of all, there were zero serious adverse events. How many student t-tests do you need to run on the number zero? Okay, it's a small database. <laughs> and then the people who defend it, I tell them, okay, the experts met on like a Thursday afternoon. We didn't get the authorization until two days later. What were they doing for two days? Okay, like 5,000 Americans died in those two days. Were they looking for a stapler or trying to get it notarized before they publish it? I mean, it just, you know, they just needed to move, it's government, they needed to move you, faster. You, I was reading into like a, a little bit of, you know, some of the things with like Fauci and such, and there were bits that like, there's a, there's this politicization uh, of, you know, everything that's happening, but it's almost like it, it's theatrics of it to pull an agenda. Do you think that like, we took longer, you know, they were done within the first two hours, but they made it seem like it was a 48 hour process because this is what, science is it's slow and it's daunting and it's methodical like do you think that probably played a role because in my mind that seems logical look i think you're onto something there i think the politicalization of it was just so disappointing from day one you know i want to add to that i think part of the reason and i'm not defending for sure but i wonder if they did that to increase people's confidence in the process like hey we're not rushing we're taking our time but at what cost because as you said, Marty, people were dying in thousands yeah. and then thousands. So I don't know. That was my yeah. first thought is like they wanted us to make sure we could take them seriously. Like, no, no, no. We did our job. But these were wartime so, conditions. Aline, that was actually a, a very serious argument that was put forth by a lot of people is take the bureaucratic steps it needs to take to stretch it out just so people have more confidence and internally there were conversations that yeah let's slow it down just so there's more confidence in it my philosophy is be transparent with the american public american seniors were sitting ducks dying in the order of two to three thousand a day if the data show zero serious adverse events and a 95% efficacy, put that data out there and let people make their decision. I think we kind of went from one extreme to the other where we approved it and then started talking about vaccine mandates. That wasn't healthy either. Yeah, yeah there were a lot of, from my perspective, there were a lot of, I think, first of all, just want to acknowledge, it's kind of fun to go back and pick apart people's decisions. I mean, this is, this is good stuff. <laughs> There's a saying about that, hindsight being some something something. Right, right. I think in hindsight, one of the things that I had trouble with or i have trouble with is the the whole idea of masks in the beginning like i know we didn't have p i didn't i know we didn't have ppe right mm -hmm. but there was a lot of hemming and hawing on the part of the cdc about whether masks would were effective or not effective and the cdc came down on the side of well we don't know so don't wear masks and i don't know i wonder if it, if it had been different basically like if if you know, what would have been the harm in saying from the beginning, right now, masks are the only thing we know to prevent the spread of airborne pathogens. I don't know if that's quite right, but yeah. but that's the only thing we, we have to prevent the spread aside from vaccines, and we don't have a vaccine yet. So wear a mask, fashion one from a t-shirt, make one out of a paper towel. I, I don't know, like don't use up the mask that we need, 
but wear a mask. And I'm, I and that's something that always bothers me. And then earlier this year, they were super cautious about the effectiveness of vaccines. We don't know if they work. We don't know if they'll last. We don't know this. We don't know that. And it always kind of bothered me because I felt like we should have, you know, if, if, if at least in the mask case, if things were, if it wasn't going to be harmful and it was probably going to be effective, I, I, I wish they had just said wear masks. I think my one of my biggest issues with that and trying to play a centrist role in understanding, like taking in the information and processing it, is we were so one way and then we flipped overnight. So I did a little digging on like dates and such. So in like February, there was evidence from the CDC that, that was showing that there was asymptomatic spread of COVID-19, which was what makes it so contagious, one of the larger properties. But in early March and throughout March, Dr. Fauci, the CDC, and WHO both are all said, don't wear masks. You know, same for healthcare workers or same if you're sick. And then up in June, or later in June, we all flipped and in interviewed Fauci even said, I said that because I didn't want to create a mask run, like a run on the mask situation and run out of PPE. And so that's like the whole theatrics of the situation going on and the lack of transparency that had occurred. And I, I, it's, you know, you're telling one thing and sides can flip. I can understand that. I think there's the aspect of people who aren't at, you know, regularly dealing with conflicting information and having to process that. But the lack of transparency in the message being given from public health organizations or uh, forefront people, I think is really contributed to a lack of trust. This is exactly why we needed you guys <laughs> contributing to public health at the highest levels. This is why we need age diversity because the old guard medical establishment doesn't think about the practicalities the way a younger generation does. And we should have done exactly what you said and that you're spot on a thousand percent. I'm loving it. But the old guard establishment has to see a randomized controlled trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA before they believe anything. And you give them one trial and they say, oh, I need to see another study. And they'll pick apart that study. This is not epidemiology class. This is the real world and people were dying. Why not hedge the bet and follow the clinical wisdom of doctors in Asia who had become believers in masks back during SARS-CoV-1 or yeah. MERS, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Why not do that? That's I literally what I was about to say is that like, hey, this isn't unprecedented or uncharted territory. Like there's an entire region of the world that dealt with a SARS virus. Let's take our cues from them. Sorry, Rick, I interrupted. No, I, I think it's a, it's a great point. I was just gonna make another, going back to the whole Fauci thing. At one point he said, I think this was in June or July, it's common sense. Wearing two masks is more efficacious than wearing one. And it's like, so where were we in the beginning where wearing masks wasn't for the lay person? It's, and it just, it frustrates me because we have all these conflicting information for people who aren't used to having to deal with such intricate health care details. And it, it just, things could have definitely been run better. And yeah, it needs to be, I think, as you said, Aline, like wartime applicable. I mean, we're in the midst of the worst, right? You know, in early March. Yeah, this was... I don't, I don't know what age some of the other people on the podcast were when 9-11 happened, but I was a teenager when 9-11 happened. And the the legislation that moved through Congress during 9-11 was like unprecedented since like World War II, World War One. Like they passed bills like, all right, I can't sign fast enough. And this, and a lot of people are comparing coronavirus to 9-11. Like so many more people died during this pandemic than 9-11. 
So how much of that government inaction do you think was due to the lack of a sticker shock of, you know, at one point there was literally a 9-11 amount of people dying every day from COVID, but because it was spread out across the entire country, you didn't see it. You didn't see bodies being piled up in a morgue. You just saw these numbers go up on a graph. And maybe if you have older relatives, you actually see people passing away from it. But for the most part, it kind of just happened and nobody really saw it because everybody was inside. Well, so at one point uh, on CNN, I can't remember, on one of the mainstream media channels, they had drone uh, footage, like aerial footage of uh, hospital staff in New York City literally digging mass graves. I mean, you're right. I think it was maybe a little less shocking and acute than like literally two buildings falling in the middle of Manhattan but but there there were images like that to kind of provoke a little more yeah. action but the political climate cannot be understated it was really fraught it's still really fraught but I remember in April when everything was going down I mean that was that was during uh, the George Floyd time and this is kind of moving away from the healthcare aspect but this was a really difficult time for American history. I mean, I think really think this is something that people in the future will study because, I mean, we had George Floyd happening and an uproar in this, you know, social political scene. They were calling it the great lockdown financially, tearing people's lives apart since we hadn't seen since the, the Great Recession. And then just the mass amounts of people dying in mm -hmm. a global pandemic. It's, so you're saying it was complicated? Just a tad. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. yeah. It was chaotic. TLDR, it was, it was a bit rough. Humanity in yeah. 2020 had a complicated relationship. Yeah. There's there's going to be scholars on just March 2020. I bet there's going to be a whole body of, of like historical literature on like just those couple of months because you're not wrong. Like so many of those things happen. And it's multifactorial. It probably played into the I mean, with everything going on, people are getting burned out emotionally and mentally and that could have led to some of somewhat of a lack of response you know the shockiness of 9-11 compared to you know the same amount of people dying every day i mean what happens when it's happened 10 days in a row 12 you know it well it's just another day hey the numbers are a little bit better today we there's only you know 90 percent of what it was yesterday and it's just i can imagine that played a role too and it's so frustrating. It is so, fr so, you know, my little journey as I was recounting for updating the book, The Price We Pay, a bunch of us in February before the lockdown, before the closures and the pandemic hit, we realized this was big. And the idea that somehow what was happening in Italy was contained was obvious to me. It was an idea we had to quickly abandon. And so a bunch of us decided, hey, nobody's speaking up about this. Nobody, none of our public health leaders, none of our government doctors, we're, let's band together and let's make that case using our platforms. We had a bunch of you know, major institutions behind us in, in, our, in our titles. And we went to the NCAA and said, you gotta cancel March Madness. We went to South by Southwest and said, you, you can't congregate a quarter million people from around the world in March of 2020. We went to Mardi Gras, we were less successful, and we took it on ourselves. We went on TV. I went on CNBC, you can go back and watch the tapes, pleading for businesses to shut down, to stop non-essential travel. And the whole time, people were saying, well, Dr. Fauci is not that concerned. Now, I love the guy to death and I respect him. And he's a gentleman, trust me, I've, I've talked to him. But they were saying, as late as March 5th, the only thing he was saying, and he was on TV nonstop, is on March 5th, he said, 
if you're old and have a chronic condition, I would avoid going on a cruise right now. <laughs> and we're like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And a bunch of doctors from Johns Hopkins had a conference call with the Wuhan Central Hospital and a bunch of doctors there. And guess what they told us? Please wear a mask. They had been through SARS and guess what? SARS-CoV-2, which is COVID-19, spreads exactly like SARS-CoV-1 or SARS. It's aerosolized virus. We should have known that. Yeah. One of the things that always kind of puzzled me about about all of these things that we tried to get people to do, you know, wear masks and even get vaccinated, is you know, so where were the celebrities? Where were the influencers? Where were the basically where was the marketing to get people who were hesitant or who didn't believe or who weren't paying attention? Basically, where was that? Anyway, um, <laughs> the point I'm the, trying to make is yeah, we we were on your wavelength. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mentioned. I mean, being an influencer, you're based on popularity. So if you're not popular mm-hmm. anymore, you don't have a career. So they, I mean, they're probably playing a game of playing a conservative. I was about to say the same thing. It, I think they toe a very careful line of like not wanting to lose their viewers, versus recognizing the influence, the the power that they hold to. I think move their viewers, but it's they're not willing to be the change, but they're willing to embrace the change once the change to the norm. I see. A lot of people are always watching for where the wind blows, and then they pick the winning side. I've noticed. And where's the humility when they get it wrong? You know, all of our public health leaders packed into a White House briefing room, doctors with no masks. You know, deep into the early epidemic, where is the humility just to say, look, we got we got this wrong. And then we have a whole summer of Black Lives Matter conversations, a healthy conversation. But then what happens when the vaccine allocation comes out, the guidance from the CDC is so confusing. Hospitals are in this decision paralysis, giving it to like grad students who are working from home and media staff working from home, hospital administrators, spouses are getting the first doses that get out there. And basically people in America with power and influence exert their ability to access the vaccine and cut in line in front of vulnerable Americans and nobody was speaking up. It was like four of us writing and sounding the alarm and blowing the whistle on this. After a whole summer on race and equality, basically once a life-saving vaccine is on the table, it's a money grab. Uh, We had terrible medical leadership throughout the pandemic. And I think it's good for our leaders to show some degree of humility to say, look, we consistently got it wrong. Do you think there'll be a like a post 9-11 report like they did after 9-11 that, you know, they had this massive, you know, investigation of what happened? Do you think there will be something through the U.S. government to hopefully analyze what we've done and report objective, hopefully objectively and unbiased? Because I think it's critical that we do that. I mean, this is a. What was the the one guest we had back? He, he also wrote a book. He said, this is a once-in-a-century opportunity as well to change healthcare. Mm-hmm. We, we ran an experiment, and we got very mixed results <laughs> in terms of our success. So, yeah, I, I hope. I don't know. I haven't heard any. Marty, have yeah, you heard of know. any conversation around that? The only sort of report on, like, a 9-11 commission report that I know of it's my book, The Price We Pay, where in the back I have a COVID <laughs> section looking back on the COVID pandemic. Nice. But no, I don't know. I don't think we're going to get one, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. We might get one on the Wuhan Central Hospital lab leak hypothesis. 
which is also interesting. Incredible to me. That's up and growing as of like the past like week or two. Week. Yeah. Can I tell you to to take the centrist? I like the way you put that. To take the centrist approach. When Trump and his people were saying that, people were losing their this racist. I can't believe you dare say that. But because it's Biden, it's totally cool now to suggest that the Chinese leaked the virus. It's that an interesting observation. Yeah. I listened to a podcast yeah. and they're like, Mark Zucker, the, he had, you know, his reporters like, hey, we have this idea. It might have been leaked from a lab. And they're like, yeah, yeah, run it, run it. And they're like, but wait, Trump said, no, 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 cancel it, cancel it. Get off the press, get off the press. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So sad. Yeah. It, in my opinion, the lab leak hypothesis is no longer a hypothesis. In my opinion, it is the default conclusion of the circumstantial evidence. Look, we're not going to know with 100% certainty. We don't know for with 100% certainty that Abraham Lincoln existed. But we have a very high degree of certainty based on putting enough pieces together. And when you know, and, and only students would know this, right? Lab accidents are common. And by the way, those Aline. experiments that- I, That <laughs> has never happened in my lifetime. How dare you suggest <laughs> I've ever done anything wrong in lab. I need to go right now. Maybe I'm the only one that's, that's had like almost one lab accident for every two lab experiments I've ever conducted in my life. That sounds about right, yeah. Well, so and, and you know, that there's a distinction to be made between, you know, you know somebody spilling a beaker, sure. you know, or whatever which is what everybody thinks of when you're talking about lab accidents versus what seems to, what taking home a BSL three. Right, right. Like that would be one kind virus. of, that would be one kind of accident. And the other kind of accident, which is, Oh, I don't feel well after working in the lab. I'm going to go to the hospital and give it to a bunch of people. And is that kind of the theory that's, uh, it's, one, it's one that I've read. What do you, what have you read? I think look, three lab workers, were treated at the Wuhan Central Hospital in November. And that's where we've always believed a case zero would have occurred in late October or November, just based on the epidemiological tracing. What are the odds that the first hospital to see COVID patients is five miles from the one of the few labs in the world managing and characterizing coronaviruses? Okay, yeah. that's almost enough information right there. And then if what if I told you that two of the doctors who initially saw those patients and blew the whistle were reprimanded and detained by the police. And that one is no longer alive despite being 32 years of age and low risk of dying of COVID, died of COVID. Yeah. There's enough pieces where I think we, we have all the information we're ever going to have. We're not gonna get more information. So when all these politicians grandstand, I demand a full investigation guess what? You're not going to get any more information. Those original virus samples are burned, incinerated, and in a dumpster right now. Yeah. Can we talk more? Because you mentioned it just now, the, the scientist that he, he acted as a whistleblower for the, the, the leakage of the virus or, you know, the being a whistleblower for the severity that it presented. Can you talk more about that? Because I don't know a lot about it, but I think it's an important point to uh, you know, bring up. Yeah. Amazing, amazing guy, by the way. And I wrote a piece in MedPage Today. And by the way, if you guys ever want to write something in MedPage Today, I'm the editor there. We're trying to create more of a forum, you know, instead of the New England Journal of Medicine process of waiting two years to hear back on your manuscripts. Mm. And so I wrote a piece there on the heroes of the pandemic, which are really the Chinese doctor. Remember, I think what's lost is the Chinese people are wonderful people. Uh, and they don't represent the Chinese Communist Party and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese people 
one of their greatest heroes and the number one hero of the pandemic for them is Dr. Lee Wenliang, the first doctor to blow the whistle, trying to warn the hospital, the community, and the world of a respiratory virus that could become catastrophic. He was detained by the police, forced to sign a confession, this is public information, reprimanded not only privately, we don't even know what happened in that detention facility, he was certainly threatened. Remember, the Chinese government will execute government officials the same day that they are identified as having caused and engaged in corruption. That's mm -hmm. the type of government you're dealing with. He was probably very scared, signed the confession, and on the TV, there was a message out that some doctors were spreading an inappropriate rumor about a contagious pneumonia. They ran that, the state TV ran it over and over again, and the doctors in the hospital were told you are not allowed to talk about a respiratory pathogen in the community. The head of the emergency room, after this doctor got sick, she took on the cause and she went missing. And her, not Twitter handle, but it's called WeChat in China, kind of went silent after she was sounding the alarm. And then she was like posting rainbows and talking how much she loves her country. And then the guy who, who got the original gene from the lab where the samples were processed He's a well-known scientist, and he was deciding, do I release the genetic sequence to the world? For five days, a doctor in Australia was a friend of his, was urging him to do this and offered to do it if he just emailed the genetic sequence of COVID-19. Wow. He knew that if he did that, he could be killed, maybe the same day that he did it. Five days, he was sweating this decision. He eventually sent it, it was posted to the world, Within two days, Moderna de designed their vaccine. And within a week, Germany released a toolkit for the world to develop a test for COVID-19. Dr. Zong is a hero. Yeah. His lab was shut down, but he's still alive today. Wow. And I was like, that's cool. I'm going to take a break just Wait, for a second. The worst time ever to take a break, Dave. <laughs> All right. Use this as your bathroom break, everyone. No, I need to take a break to talk about our sponsor. <laughs> yes, yes. Please stay and listen to our sponsors because we really need you to. Uh, Panacea Financial is a company founded by two doctors that were frustrated as medical trainees that banks didn't seem to understand the unique needs of those in the medical field. So they weren't passive. They built a company just for medical students and doctors. With nationwide digital banking, Panacea Financial provides medical students with free checking that includes no ATM fees nationwide, high yield savings accounts, a free personal banker around the clock customer support with loans designed for you and mine. No one should borrow more than they need, but with Panacea Financial, fourth year medical students can get money as needed in as little as 24 hours with their PRN personal loan. That's an interest rate half of a usual credit card. No co-signer requirement and it's a fully digital application. Instead of running up credit card debt, try their new PRN personal loan that is designed to give you a better way to cover expenses such as residency applications and relocation or board exams. Some customers actually use it to pay off toxic credit card debt. In addition, medical students can have a period of no or reduced payments on their PRN personal loan. So join the growing number of medical students and physicians nationwide that expect more from their bank. Uh, go to PanaceaFinancial.com today to open your free account. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. 
I I just had a feeling I haven't had in a long time, which is like when I was a kid and I was watching a TV show and my parents changed a channel at the most important moment (laughs) and there wasn't TiVo, there wasn't Netflix. If you weren't taping it, you were done. You missed out. There was no internet to look up the ending. You broke my heart, Dave. Look, broke my heart. (laughs) <laughs> Aline, you can you just cannot be made happy today. Sponsor- you know, I love it when Dave says high yield. <laughs> Sponsors are important. Let's move on, uh, or let's continue the processing of that bombshell. I've given you. Let's. You know what? I gave you a minute to process. That's true. That's Aline, true. was that from Analyze This? You broke my heart. Was that the line from the movie? <laughs> No, but uh, can I change my mind and have it be from that? Because that's, that's a great reference. That was the best part of that movie. Analyze this. What a cra- Do you guys know that movie? No. It was a movie with Robert, Billy, Crystal Billy Crystal and Robert, Robert De Niro. De Niro yeah. He's a mobster who like starts to have these like a, I don't know like a midlife crisis, and he like can't kill bad guys like he used to, and he you know goes to Billy Crystal to be a shrink, and it's just hijinks galore. <laughs> that's a crazy story that's is that is that gonna get published like is anyone doing the investigative journalism to put that story together and memorialize these people these veritable heroes you know it's amazing most of that was on the internet if you piece it together and without even calling uh, people close to it in china i was able to put that piece together in MedPage today on china's heroes I hope journalists start doing their job. Journalism is basically dead in America. There's no more public accountability for local governments or large corporate medicine establishments. We've got giant hospitals engaging in predatory billing and suing patients, a practice that my team and I have largely shut down in the United States by creating some attention around it in the book, The Price We Pay, and partnering with journalists. But we need more people writing. You know, we need for all your listeners out there, write something and send it to Newsweek or the New York Times or MedPage Today or JAMA Opinion. Or we need more people writing. It's not that hard. I think right now the only voices we hear from are the old guard establishment, and I think we need people with more of a social justice value. And right now, your generation. Social justice is a generational value. Yeah, we actually have a group that is in the Carver College of Medicine right now that is doing editorial writing. I can't remember what it's called. The Doctor is in. Yeah, it's The Doctor is in. in. Our... They're, they're doing editorial writing on a local level. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on your suggestion to them, I, I, Marty. I want to make a, a comment that just like I, I really do see that and I agree with what you're saying. You know, I I made the reflection that my class, so the ones that are class of 2024, it's really cool to be around these individuals. I mean, not only the brightest individuals I've ever been surrounded, surrounded by, but individuals who are seeking to just change how everything works. People who see issues and they're vocal about it. I mean, loud and disruptive, but in a, you know, a cooperative in... Uh, pushing forward productive way and it's just it's the coolest thing because I feel like I'm surrounded by the people that are going to make things better and it's it's just it's really inspiring and you know I agree no no diss on previous classes or anything but yes there has been an increase as far as I can tell in this sort of discussion and this sort of demands that I joined my first book club that's a whole other topic but before a class reading is hard Rick 
I still don't even know if I can do it. You don't have to tell us. We're med students. (laughs) We know. But before classes started. watch cartoons. (laughs) Watching cartoons and learning all about the bugs and drugs through it. No reading here. (laughs) All right. Stop showing off more. All right. Same before classes started, they had a, a race and health disparity seminar that I took place in or took part in. And uh, some of my colleagues started a book club and we opted to read three different books. I only read two of them about just different things going on in healthcare and, and being a physician or a clinician just in general and how we can do better. What are the issues and how we can do better? And like I said, my first book club and that was it. And that's 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 a heck of a first step. So very cool, very privileged or very honored to be around the individuals that I am. You know, that's the mindset that we've got to adopt right now in healthcare, and we can't leave it up to the old guard establishment. The New England Journal of Medicine has 51 editors, one African-American and one Hispanic. Mm. If we leave it up to that generation to figure out how to pivot quickly in a health emergency, how to redesign the way we share information through publishing, the gauntlet, the, the ridiculousness of medical education today in America, where you gotta learn the freaking Krebs cycle and memorize every intermediate at four different times in your education to regurgitate it. You never need to know that in clinical practice. I mean, if we leave it up to these folks, we're gonna be broken 10, 20, 50 years from now. And it's a false choice that I think students are given. You gotta pick one of these specialties. You gotta pick an organ in the body. Okay, you gotta pick derm or you gotta pick OB or anesthesiology. Guess what? You should be able to pick the redesign of healthcare. You should be able to pick the topics that we're passionate about, like making medical arguments to address human rights violations instead of just political arguments and addressing food as medicine and talking about environmental exposures that cause cancer, not just memorizing chemo drugs. We've got to start changing the conversation about the overall system that's broken, and we need to be able to just pick up that system, shatter it, pick up the pieces, and start over. And people are doing that right now. You look at ChenMed, you look at Iora, you look at Oak Street, Landmark, all these disruptors that I write about in the book, The Price We Pay, these are clinical leaders. They're people who went to med school and said, this system is so freaking broken, I wanna be a part of designing something different, and we can't rely on the government to give us a new you know, health reform because they're just talking about different ways to finance healthcare. We need to talk about how to fix healthcare. So that's where our education, I think, is giving students false choices, saying you can only pick one of these narrow areas and you have to practice it full time or you're no good. That's such a good point. Yeah. Never. I think never more than right now have have two schools of thought been more at odds about what healthcare should look like, who should pay for it, what it should even cost and how it should be delivered, how it should be delivered. Yeah. So, Marty, I'm a member of the Iowa's or the state of Iowa's chapter of the AMA, and I see my classmates, my colleagues, working hard to lobby the state legislators and coming up with resolutions to propose nationally. And then, you know, you see announcements coming out nationally from AMA, like they recently released a report on healthcare equity and ways we can address it from the level of education. 
but then I don't see actually laws being passed at the largest levels that would actually meet these. Do you think that there's going to be a an eventual reconciliation between this older generation as they retire and the upcoming generation that's really hyped up about making changes for equity and for the general good instead of for profit? I do, AJ. I, like, I, I, th I think there will be. I think people are fed up with the way we're, we're doing medicine. I mean, who, honestly, who wants to see patients for eight to 10 minutes, nine to five or eight to five every day and have half a day to catch up on your billing notes and your billing codes. You know, when you take the board exam now in plastic surgery, let's say you want to go and do cleft lip repair and you want to do burn surgery and cancer reconstruction as a plastic surgeon. On your board exam and the oral exams, they ask you what the billing code is for the different procedures. I mean, what a joke, right? Somebody needs to push back and say, you guys have to be kidding me. This is, you've completely succumbed to corporate medicine. And so I think people are getting fed up right now and I think it's gonna depend on your generation to say, we're gonna do things differently. And I hope those conversations in the AMA, which are healthy and I'm glad they're taking place, I think they hope they move outside of our internal echo chambers of medicine because we gotta be out there. We gotta be in the New York Times. Why do you think I write for the Wall Street Journal and USA Today? We, and go on cable news, we gotta be out there. Too much of what we do is we're just writing abstracts and talking to ourselves at our meetings and we're saying, congratulations, this'll help you internally get a residency. It's a silly game and enough people now are saying, we gotta redesign that whole system. Did you start off as a rabble rouser? <laughs> well, I, I gotta you, tell I mean, you, you like these guys, were you like these guys in med school where, where they're like, you know, talking about these big topics, or did you come to it later? What do, you, what do you think? I do remember this. I do remember doing my master's in public health at Harvard, and I've just loved every second of it. I was like, ah, finally we're getting to the underlying things that bring people into the hospital. And then I just realized, you know, talking to mentors, it's important to do a residency to have that credibility as a clinician. Yeah. So I chose a residency, I happened to choose surgery. And my mentor said, now, <clears throat> you got to kind of table all your outside interests and eat, drink, and sleep surgery for the next five years. Mm -hmm. And I did that. And at, the, at that time, I took in the observations. I, I wrote them down. I wrote a bunch of my experiences down. That was basically my book, Unaccountable, which was turned into the TV series, The Resident. Without my creative, I'm, I'm not the director or writer of that, of that TV series. But they used the book Unaccountable to make that show. And it was basically these observations of, why do we do things that way? Can't we do it better? More people are dying from sloppy handwriting at the time and writing hand prescriptions than from the medications themselves with their adverse events. These are the big questions that we don't tend not to ask. We just sort of accept that's the way of doing business. But I remember taking sort of a, a pause from thinking about the health of the public, public health, and just focusing on a clinical specialty. And ultimately, I think having that residency gives you a little more credibility in talking about these issues. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I like to, that I have observed on the show over the years and, and just working in, medicine, in med school is that, yeah, you do have to, there is a period residency where you just kind of give up a lot of stuff that you've been thinking about or wanting to, wanting to address but you can come back to it later and make it your 
what other specialty you know yeah you but people will listen to you like it you're does. right being a practicing doctor has a carries a lot of credibility you got to get there first and you know the process can take a lot out of you and it can yeah. and and yeah there's the danger i guess of as the process takes a lot out of you of like losing sight of that thing that you wanted and then we that. fall back into well this is what happened to me or this is how it works this right. is the this is tradition we yeah do it, we do it like this yeah i did it i i did it so do you have to yeah i think the, one of the big problems or the obstacles i think to creating the change that we're talking about is that a lot of people have the right values but they don't have the right ways of selling these ideas to people who aren't already on our team and that's a big problem that I encounter because I am good at that. <laughs> I'm really good at understanding people who feel differently than I do. And I'm really good at getting them to realize like, hey, we, we want the same things. We're just arguing about the methods. But I think sometimes those conversations can be difficult because people mistake questions for intolerance or just like mere inquiries as, as disagreement and like, I think we all fundamentally want the same things, but we're not as good these days at selling our idea. Like, because, I mean, Marty, what you're talking about is getting the old guard to see things the way we do, but we're not, I don't think we do a good job of like putting our goals on their strategic radars. And like sometimes it, it comes down to a matter of like, hey, have you done the math? Have you realized that what we're talking about will make you more money? <laughs> and usually, I hate to say it, but that's an argument that works pretty often of like, oh, I didn't think of it that way. You're saying this is going to make me richer? Okay. And I'm not above making that argument if it gets someone on my team, right? But I mean, it came, it came to light just several months ago when we had a limited supply of a life-saving vaccine and we were losing Americans thousands a day like sitting ducks. And the question is, how do we ration wisely, okay? And so many of us said, the data on the first dose is so impressive, 92% efficacy at four weeks, published in the New England Journal. Let's focus on getting first doses out there. Let's save as many people as possible. One dose is better than none. Let's focus on first doses, postpone the second doses to 12 weeks, effectively doubling our vaccine supply mm -hmm. for a couple months, okay? saving tens of thousands more Americans if we did that. By the way, the UK did it. And I was going to say, yeah, the UK was, was yeah. doing that, yeah. UK did it, and I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal on how they basically beat us to herd immunity because they did that. Now, the old guard establishment said, no, no, you can't. This is the FDA-approved label. You have to come back for that second dose on time. If you don't, we don't know if your antibodies are going to drop off like a cliff. That, that's literally a quote from one of our public health leaders. Well, guess what? That was a far-fetched hypothesis. The efficacy, the logic on the first dose was solid. We should have done that. There's a good example of how our establishment gets so set in their ways, they don't ever think about rationing, but I think a younger mind thinks more practically. Yeah, we're more plastic. We're definitely more open to looking at things in a different way. Yeah. Receptive to those different viewpoints. Yeah. And also, be, I think, being willing to ask questions, as well, it you takes, mentioned. It takes yeah. effort to do that, too. You know, like, I always, I always say that, you know, for an old guy like me, it takes a certain amount of effort to remain relevant and cool. <laughs> I don't, you know, you can, and you can argue whether I'm doing a good job about that or not. But the point is, like, you know, you have to, you have to make an effort 
to keep that open mind. It doesn't just, I don't think for everybody it just happens or you just are that way. I mean, this should have been an easy sell because literally 100% of people stood to benefit from a better and more equitable vaccination campaign. But yeah, I, yeah, I think tradition is strong. Tradition is a powerful thing. The other piece of insanity that you know, I cataloged and sort of a look back on COVID was, and these are all positions I took, you know, so basically before the pandemic, I was sounding the alarm on cable news that we had to get, get ready and don't listen to the CDC, this thing's gonna get bad. And then I wrote the first piece calling for universal masking back in the spring and the New York Times took a lot of heat for it among doctors, lots of criticisms. You know, this is crazy, this is insane, masks don't work. And then I put my head out there again, critical of the FDA with their approval process. And then when the vaccine rollout came, I said, why are we vaccinating people already immune from prior infection mm -hmm. at a time when we don't have enough vaccines to protect vulnerable seniors? That was insane to me. We had at least 10% of the population documented to have had the infection. And instead the old guard establishment again said, oh, well, we." we'd have to test their antibody levels and we don't know if their antibodies are sustainable or not. Well, guess what? The data just came out that natural immunity protection is long. We actually have more data on natural immunity than we do vaccinated immunity because we've had natural immunity around longer. It's durable, it works, it's as effective as vaccines, at least so far. And so this was the incentive and we're still seeing it, right? Public health officials all this year have talked about two groups of Americans, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Well, half of America has natural immunity, including half of the unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. They're like, hey, well, where do I fall in this? Do I? And there's this sort of don't even discuss it. Right. And that, of course, puts the projection of herd immunity further out, because if you ignore the fact that half of the unvaccinated have natural immunity, how are we going to get to 85 percent of the population immune? We got to do mandates and we got to get every kid vaccinated and we got to demonize the hesitant, maybe people who had the infection have durable immunity from natural immunity. Our public health officials completely ignored it. And again, their average age is like 72. How about some more practical thinking folks who believe in social equity, who see the practicality of a different strategy? I remember, this is kind of a, a little bit of an aside, but I remember in terms of equitable distribution of just life-saving resources, so masks or vaccines. I remember in Iowa, we had you know all those meatpacking plants. That was the big thing that set us off early yeah. on in terms of increasing, exponentially increasing uh, numbers of COVID positive patients and just seeing how we didn't adjust any of our strategy to assist those individuals at largely increased risk compared to the general public. It just blew my mind. And not only that, not only were they at risk, these are, we don't have to name them, but they're meatpacking plants that serve the entire country and countries abroad. So helping them would not only have helped, you know, besides the moral reasons of helping those people because they're at increased risk, it would have, it would have been such a better application of those, it would have protected, anyway, yeah, agreed. Yeah, Frontline did a good documentary on the meatpacking industry and showed how it's mostly Hispanic workers. They're afraid of saying something because many of them are undocumented. And the special interests that lobbied on behalf of the meatpacking food companies 
basically tried to keep everything hush-hush and got the government to actually issue a statement that meatpacking plants need to continue to stay open, right? As if it was like a national security issue with our food supply. I don't know if you've ever seen Frontline, but they have some really good documentaries. What, what is Frontline exactly? Oh, Frontline is the PBS documentary network. And if you go to frontline.org, uh, you can watch any of their documentaries for free. And I don't know if that counts as a, maybe you can bill them and just say that we just promoted an advertisement for them. You're a sponsor, there's no take back. Let me, uh, <laughs> let me just write that down. Okay, there we go. Send it right to my Venmo account. <laughs> <laughs> Frontline.org. And the topics that we go without, there's social justice issues that we tackle on my team. We post those issues at restoringmedicine.org, which is our social justice half to our research. So my opinion is, when you do research, it should be to make something better, to fix something. You don't just want to characterize coronaviruses in a lab just to see what they look like, right? That's, that's dumb. Instead, mm -hmm. we should be doing stuff to address the giant problems facing our age, like loneliness among seniors and what causes Alzheimer's, which is a grant proposal we have in right now. We think we understand the cause of it. These are the issues we should be tackling. And when you get data, when you discover stuff, you should convert to advocacy, right? You should fight for what you believe to be important. Not just enough, I just got, not enough just to publish. Yeah, then, I mean, I just got this matter? review from JAMA today. It made me want to vomit a little bit. It's like... This um, sounds juicy. Tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we published, and you know, maybe they'll pull the paper because they're going to hear this. I don't know. If they do, that's fine. Well, it'll be our little secret. You can tell just <laughs> and our listeners. I so look, this out. <laughs> my students, so we, we uncovered the practice of hospitals suing patients for unpaid bills and then garnishing their wages in court. And it was primarily, we published this in JAMA a year and a half ago, Walmart workers, food service workers, postal workers, people with insurance. And our feeling was this is a disgrace to the great field of medicine. And we went to the CEOs and said, we know what you're doing please stop. And if you don't stop, we're going to take it to the media. And about a third of hospitals were suing patients. Some of them stopped, maybe half. The other half, we handed the, hand packaged a story to the media and they wrote. And they wrote that story over the last year and a half. It was the number one story in health journalism. You've seen all those stories in different media outlets. Those were mostly stories we planted with the data that we collected. We've got more coming out in on Axios on June 15th. That'll be, I guess, you know, like this week. And we're shutting it down. We're shutting down the practice across the country. It violates the great public trust. When hospitals were founded, they were supposed to be a safe haven. And they were supposed to be a refuge for anybody sick, regardless of their race or their immigration status or their ability to pay. That is the great heritage of our American hospitals. Most were founded by churches or philanthropists. And that's the tradition we have to uphold. Now, 64% of Americans say that they've avoided or delayed care for fear of a bill. That's a disgrace, and that's not on us. That's our administration hounding people with, let's be honest, let's call a spade a spade, as I do in the book, The Price We Pay. We gotta change the lexicon. It's price gouging mm -hmm. of people at a time when they're vulnerable and engaging in predatory billing, like the subprime mortgage business was doing. We can call it out. These are our services. 
So we're engaging with doctors and students around the country to say, speak up on this. We're trying to create public accountability through some transparency, documenting where this stuff happens. We get students around the country going to their local courthouses, asking to see records of any lawsuits by the hospital, and we're winning. We're shutting it down. And so we have this paper in JAMA coming out any day now, JAMA Open, and it shows the number of lawsuits in the United States crashing down once we started this advocacy effort with the book, The Price We Pay, the first edition. And so I got in the editor's comments today, this comment, maybe even read it here for you. It basically said, discussion is too subjective, needs to only stick to the data. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't have an emotional In other words, you care too much. You're too close to the... You you like these people? That's crazy. You care about what you're investing your time in? What a loser. (laughs) (laughs) What an insane comment. I mean, I get... I I understand. There's, there's, There's a real argument to be made about how being too emotionally invested in a thing can cloud your your logical judgment but without emotions we'd be like robots like emotions are what signal to us where we should invest our logic and what we care about so that's a that's a really weird comment to get from a reviewer i wasn't surprised i was actually from the editor and sorry from i'm the not editor. surprised you're right you know we we detach ourselves and you see docs out there you may you may have seen these docs out there they're robots they're basically you know, robots. And what's happened, and by the way, it was me at a certain point in my residency because I'm dealing with trauma in the trauma bay. I'm overwhelmed. I'm in over my head. I didn't have good support as a resident at one of my rotations. And I detach emotionally as a coping mechanism. And you see that, right? You see that in residents we work with and in docs. And I was one of those. And sometimes we even go in and out of those different stages to cope. And the reality is, it's important to maintain an emotional connection with our subject matter, with the patients we deal with, with the research that we do, and it is good to be passionate about what's right. I mean, these are the rally cries that we we crave, I think, as young. We don't have enough people like in the older generation talking like this, and, and certainly not people taking action the way that you are, because I remember I was on the original episode that you came on the show for and you were talking about you yourself. I mean, just think about this. You, a surgeon, going down to the courthouse and arguing for patients. I was like, you're more expensive than a lawyer. Those those <laughs> patients are really, you know, really lucky to have you, you know, not just able to argue the law, but argue the medical necessity. I mean, that was really powerful. So, like, for what it's worth, like, from my humble perspective, like, thank you for not just talking the talk but walking the walk too we need more of that you're Thanks. the person who's changing the paradigm yeah. you're, you're setting the tone for the trainees like us who see that and become inspired by it and say that can be done and if there's anything that i've learned you know going back to that seminar that i had is we have to be vocal we can't just sit in the sidelines because 20 percent of the impact that we have on patients is just the medical care. There's so many other factors, all those social determinants of health that have to be impacted and we have to be outside of the clinic, outside the hospital to make those differences. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. McCary, where can people find out more about you and your work? sounds like everywhere, first of all. (laughs) Um, Yeah, connect on social media. I'm on all social, not on Instagram much, but um, LinkedIn, Twitter, although Twitter's a nasty place. I do have a presence. <laughs> we all email have a presence me. on Twitter, yeah. It's a, 
Yeah, so, yeah, we do. All we all do it reluctantly, but it's you know it's good to push out some of the articles sometimes that yeah. I write. And then I have a website, Marty MD, and then I've got the book, The Price We Pay, is a nice sort of synopsis of all of our work to date, really the collective work of all the students I've worked with, and I'm really proud of it and the update in the paperback version that's out right now. So I invite anybody to learn about our work. We do a lot of work on the appropriateness of care. That's the other half of the book is on what's, what's, how do we measure appropriateness instead of just measuring complication rates? Like, do people really need this care or are there other things that can be done? And so we do a lot of work on appropriateness and I will just, you know, remind all of you that one of the great specialties you won't hear much about in medical school is primary care and it's beautiful and it's becoming well respected again in the community. The pay is way up now. I'm learning a, a lot of job openings north of $220,000 a year to start in primary care. Those are you know, very close to surgeon starting salaries. So it's becoming attractive again, it's becoming respected and it's really becoming sort of the glue now in healthcare and it's the center of the business of medicine because primary care doctors are in charge of steering people to the right high value appropriate care out there. So that's one of our areas of interest is primary care and appropriateness. And then finally, we're working on a billing quality score for hospitals, a five-star billing quality score so that when you Google a hospital, you won't just get the name and address and phone number, you'll get the name, address, phone number, and the average price markup of that hospital and how they do on their billing quality score, their five-star score. One of those stars is whether or not they sue patients. So we're trying to move the market by creating healthy competition to reward the hospital's doing the right thing. Really, the hospital administrator's doing the right thing. The doctors are demanding this, and I think that's moving things along. So thanks for having me, and it's great to be with you guys again. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you, AJ. Thanks for having Dr. McCary on, guys. (laughs) Thank you for coming, Marty. Great. Thanks, AJ. Aline, Rick, thank you for being on the show today with me as well. Thanks for having me. Yes. And what kind of ding-dong would I be if I didn't thank you, Short Coats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available. Our editors are AJ Chowdhury and Eric Bozart, and Alex Belzer is our marketing coordinator. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government, an ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our music is by Dr. Fox and Cabosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying, don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too.